Our story begins here with coffee. Is this coffee? No. This is coffee. Good coffee. Brewed into a beverage that is consumed in the hundreds of millions of cupfuls each day. A tradition that reaches deeply into the secrets of aroma and body and taste. Greetings all and welcome to another episode of Prerequisites. I'm Justice Neeland, Professor of English and Chair of the Department of English and host of this podcast. And today I'll have the chance to talk to my colleague, Dr. Kaveh Askeri, who is the Director of Film Studies at MSU. Professor Askeri's research and teaching focus on cinema and media history in a global context. Special areas of interest include art cinema, media circulation, film and the other arts, and cinemas of the Middle East. Professor Askeri is author of the book, Making Movies into Art with the British Film Institute and co-editor of Performing New Media, 1890, to 1915. Dr. Scar has also co-edited various special issues of scholarly journals like Film History, The Journal of Religion and Popular Culture, and Early Popular Visual Culture. Today, though, we're here to talk about Kaveh's newest book, which is titled Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran, Material Cultures in Transit, just out with the University of California Press. This is a groundbreaking, archivally rich study of the cultures of cinema's distribution in mid-century Iran. I had the chance, the pleasure really, to read portions of this book in progress, and so I'm especially excited to see it in its beautiful finished form as an object. It was such fun to talk about this project with Kaveh. I hope you enjoy and learn as much from the conversation as I did. Well, it's my pleasure today to have a chance to talk to my colleague, Dr. Kaveh Askeri, about his new book titled Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran, Material Cultures in Transit. Congratulations, Kaveh, on this remarkable achievement. The book is just out with California University Press in their new series, Cinema Cultures in Contact. Uh, I had a chance to read a couple of chapters of this book while Kaveh was in the process of writing it. I did not have a chance to read the introduction until I was preparing for, for this conversation, and that was a complete delight. Uh, Kaveh, I thought we might start by just having you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of this project. Obviously, you're trained as a film historian, and your early work has uh, taken up earlier moments in, in film history. Um, so what brought you to this particular project? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I could talk about the uh, the genesis of the project in sort of my professional development. Um, I can also talk about um, childhood experiences that are that contribute to the genesis of of the project. Um, I mean, the, when I started working on it, it was I was at a postdoc at uh, UC Berkeley um, it, uh, right after uh, right out of grad school after I left Chicago. Uh, and instead of, I, mean, I should have probably been working on my first book, um, and instead of doing that, I started procrastinating by, by thinking about a, a second book. Um, and the University of California has a complete print run, like an actual hard copy run of uh, this, um, this uh, uh, sort of primary Iranian newspaper. Uh, that, that gets going in the in the mid 1920s and, and continues. And uh, so I I was thinking about I mean my my first book um, and my early research was on early cinema. I was very interested in the adventure serial, and I was curious about the ways. I mean a lot of my colleagues, close colleagues, were sort of writing articles on uh, various sort of global uh, iterations of the adventure serial. And I, was, I was curious about sort of how that played. In, in Iran, so I, I started going through these issues page by page of Etalat, which is the you know the the uh, daily uh, paper um, that that is in the special collections at UC Berkeley, and photographing the pages and and I, I started to find these um, these serials uh, advertised um, in the paper, and I was really surprised to find elaborate. Um, 
uh, translations because uh, a lot of the times these serials came with their own, uh, you know, they were they were printed in various forms, narrativized. Um, and I found elaborate translations of these uh, narrations of the serial. You know, the the one of the most important ones I found was the Tiger's Trail, a Ruth Roland serial, and I, it was the thing that was fascinating to me, aside from like doing this basic study of of circulation uh, and exhibition, was the way that you could tell a certain episode of the serial was advertised at one point in the newspaper. And then, uh, and then that episode was, was uh, the um, story was printed also in half of the, the page of a newspaper. And then at other times, the episode would be missing from the advertisement and would be translated. So you can start to build a sense of the, you know, these, the serials are all gone. Uh, you know, there's, there's no archive of this material, but you could get a sense of where the missing teeth were uh, and and so the, the the project the initial conception of the project was how to use archival material to basically recreate the physical presence of these objects some of which are, are preserved in archives but but much of which is is lost and so that became uh, the first chapter of the book I, I wrote it as an article and then each subsequent chapter um, became, uh, you know, a, an exercise in trying to recreate this sort of fragmented archive or this missing archive. If you want, I can also talk about a sort of childhood I'd love to hear a little, a little bit more about the, the more personal connections to the project, if you would. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, I'm, you know, I, I grew up, I, I lived in Iran for, as a, as a small child, as an, as an infant, uh, toddler, um, but I, you know, born in the U.S. and grew up in, uh, in the U.S. and I encountered a lot of Hollywood films uh, as in, in my childhood, and uh, those were, you know, my my father uh, was and is a, a cinephile and um, and is really interested in in this kind of period in Hollywood, particularly the period that I'm, you know, that is the main focus of the book. Mm. And there was always a sense that you know these films are were were Hollywood films, and I was encountering Hollywood history, but there many of them were films that he saw in Iran as a as a young. Uh, as a young man or as an adolescent, um, you know, for my fifth grade, uh, a little kind of science project thing, um, we recreated this basically a kind of slide projector viewer thing that that he used when he was uh, uh, in, also in fifth grade to uh, project and view fragments of film that he would basically get from projection booths and collect. Um, so this was this, these were an important part of the story of. Um, of you know life life in Iran that that my my father would tell me so I'm kind of you know th this book is is sort of returning to that and and living um, that aspect and even my middle name um, I learned and this may be an apocryphal story but uh, I, but it comes from my father that, that um, my middle name is actually Travis uh, all of my brothers we all have uh, names that we that my parents wanted us to have the option of um, of not uh, having a difficult to pronounce uh, or understand name uh, in the U S and and I, I learned from my father that, that the name came to him, came to his attention uh, from basically a Tehran screening of the Alamo, this John Wayne uh, directed film, and sort of Lawrence Harvey's rendition of Colonel Travis in the Alamo. Uh, seeing that in the Tehran screen, uh, on a Tehran screen, was a sort of part of these kind of fantasies of of his youth, and that's kind of how the name stuck with him. So even, you know, my first name is from Sean Amey. It has this kind of nationalist dimension. It's associated with uh, various kind of political movements or, or magazines, um, uh, and also this, this sort of deep cultural association with like Iranianness. And then my middle name is is kind of uh, about the circulation of films in Iran. So it's 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 this complicated diasporic naming uh, situation that that I'm living. I've never heard that story, and thank you so much for for sharing it. I, I wonder if we might um, turn more specifically to how you understand some of the, uh, the uh, field specific conversations, the discipline specific conversations that the project is entering. And obviously you, you've signaled the ways in which you're understanding the project as a, as a project about circulation. And we wanna come to some of the more precise methodologies for that. This is a, obviously a film studies project, but it's also a media studies project. It's also a media archeological project. It's connected to science and technology studies, to infrastructure studies. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it is, is how you are able to connect film studies to these other disciplines. So just say a little bit about how you're conceptualizing the project in terms of a field and field conversations. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I, and you mentioned this a little bit in the beginning of our conversation uh, about my sort of training in early cinema studies um, and thinking of that more as a methodological intervention than um, necessarily a, a delimited field. Um, obviously, it is, a, it is a delimited field and there's you know an entire industry of, of producing scholarship around films made before 1915. Um, but in, in, at least in terms of this book, I'm sort of taking it up as a methodological intervention, right? Thinking about all what what early cinema studies has offered to these larger fields that you've actually described. You know, this emphasis on archival research, this emphasis on the materiality of the print, on a, a form of writing history that breaks apart, uh, that doesn't rely solely on textual analysis, that thinks about you know uh, exhibition space, thinks about distribution. Um, and that because it was before this the sort of formation of classical narrative and before the formation of like the the oligopoly in Hollywood, um, it is a very um, a, a form of studying media that is very interested in all of its its multifaceted elements, right? Um, it's a way of sort of breaking through a kind of bottleneck uh, in a, a sort of narrowed historiography. Um, that um, could potentially congeal around sort of classical uh, films. And I, I thought like, if you're looking at an industry um, like this, if you, if you take, it, there, there's a real risk of falling into a kind of narrowed historiography. And, um, and you know, we, we might benefit from looking to these uh, other subfields that have, have dealt with similar problems and say, well, what are some of the tools that they've used and how could they, um, you know, uh, be uh, applied or expanded in this particular field. And that's not to say that, I, mean, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, er, that, that 50 cinema in Iran is like early cinema right, right. in the U.S. I mean, it's not, it's not an argument like that, but rather, you know, methods, methods don't have to belong to periods. Methods uh, can be um, uh, moved around at, at, at our discretion. That's, 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 a, that's our privilege as, as scholars, as historians. Yeah, and you make that point so nicely. And in the introduction. I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why you eventually gravitated towards the concept of relay for thinking about circulation. That seems to be one of the key kind of conceptual innovations of the book. And I, I'm kind of curious about when in this very um, careful archival research, you, you sort of seized upon relay as a term and, and what the yield of that is for uh, film historians and media scholars. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, it, it's it's a it's a, an interesting history of that that term. Um, there's sort of personal elements to it. I guess I'm sharing a lot of those on in our conversation today. That's great. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I so I, I tried out a bunch of different things. I was talking about infrastructures a lot when I was originally presenting this um, at, at conferences. Um, at one point, I. I use the metaphor of a chain. Um, and I think, you know, one of my uh, mentors, Hamid Nafistik, basically, when I was presenting some of this uh, research, he took me aside and, and said, you know, you, you really need to come up with a term, right? Um, and if you want to use this term chain uh, circulation, that, that, that's fine. Um, uh, but, it, you know, it, you really need to sort of think about what, what the term is going to be. So I really, uh, that was kind of the motivation for me, his, his prompting, um, you know, I do owe him a lot um, to, to sort of come up with a, a clear term uh, to, to describe um, exactly what it is that's, that's, um, that I'm sort of pinpointing uh, in, in this kind of math, in the methods and the research, but um, also kind of in this period. Um, and I wanted to get at this idea of each phase, uh, you know, it's about circulation, but it's not, it's about forms of circulation that are not transparent, right? Um, where, you know, that they're not visible um, from, from every perspective at once, right? And they're in fact designed to be invisible at each stage. Um, and they, that's the way, the only way that they work. Um, and so this, this idea of relay uh, seemed natural. I can say that the first, um, the, the first moment it came to my mind, I mean, obviously I'd encountered it in electronic communications um, uh, theory uh, and thinking about like amplifying a signal, you know, a, a relay point is at once dependent on the source signal, but it's also semi-autonomous. Um, you know, it, it, it receives a signal, but amplifies it and transforms it. Um, so that connection to sort of media history is, is an important part 
of it. Um, but the term actually came to me. I was just um, I lived in Bellingham, Washington, uh, and there's a there's a huge uh, relay race there called Ski to Sea. Mm. Um, and I do all the outdoor things. I, I ski, I snowboard, I um, you know kite surf, and all those things. And I participate in this relay race every year. Um, and it was just, you know, the, just the experience of it, like I did the cross country leg, which is at seven in the morning or eight in the morning or something like that. Uh, and I would go home and take a nap and then it's like a 60 mile relay race. And then the, our, our, our team members would be finishing the race after my nap, I would go see them finish. Right. And the, the, this idea of just like handing off something and not knowing where it was going to go after you handed it off, um, that, that seemed to me to, um, be a, a compelling way to frame exactly what I was exploring historiographically in the project. Yeah, it, it works so well and it, it, it ends up being such a rich way of accounting for both the way media moves and as you describe it, for thinking about uh, a model of a kind of decentralized agency and also for getting us to think about what um, the ways in which the obstructions of circulation themselves have creative potential and we want to sort of as we continue the conversation, maybe talk through a few specific examples of that. And I thought maybe one way into that would be for our listeners who may not know much at all about the post-war um, distribution of Hollywood cinema in Iran, for you to say a little bit about um, junk prints and the circulation of junk prints, but maybe start with something more basic, which is what is a junk print? And then uh, in what way did junk prints circulate in this relayed fashion that you just described? Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, the term, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a term that you encounter in earlier histories of, of film circulation. I mean, Kristen Thompson's um, book on, on sort of Hollywood abroad uh, film circulation uh, uses the term, and it's a term that's used in the industry. Um, if you look in the OED, uh, the, the first use of the term junk is actually, the first modern use of the term junk, it actually goes back to um, sailing ships and um, line and that kind of thing. But the, the first modern term is a, a film term. It's from like a 1913 film manual um, talking about films are, you know, first run and valuable and then they're junk immediately afterwards, right? Um, and, and, and so, the, you know, the, the term has a connection uh, to, a, a strong connection to cinema, even in sort of contemporary um, you know, in, in, a, in a source as, as um, important as the OED. Um, but as far as the perspective of the distributors, um, you know, the, the thing I think we, I, I try to, to, to focus on or emphasize in the book is that, you know, films are these, they're incredibly expensive objects. They're, you know, the reels of film are expensive. They're expensive to produce. Um, and uh, they lose their value relatively quickly depending on context. So they're, they're sort of volatile in their value. Uh, and uh, they're not only expensive to produce but they're expensive to maintain. Um, you know, and if you're talking about nitrate, obviously um, there are safety risks involved but, you know, acetate film, uh, you know, breaks down as well and turns to vinegar and, um, and they, they require a lot of complicated and expensive storage. Um, and so at the point at which their value volatility um, makes them valueless in a, a particular situation, the, the most cost-effective thing to do is get rid of them, right? And so you can either destroy them or you can send them to a market that as a distributor, if you failed to effectively uh, mo uh, you know, monetize, um, you failed to effectively control. And just, it's basically a form of throwing away a print um, that has a, a, a mild profit associated with it. Um, it's a way of offloading cost, um, and it's also a way of, of um, excusing yourself from the risk of trying to actively monitor ticket sales. Because if you're, if, you're, if you're renting a film to a particular place and you have to monitor ticket sales, then there's a whole infrastructure of surveillance that you need to uh, put in place to make sure that the ticket sales reports that you're getting are accurate. Um, if you just sell a print for $700, a junk print, um, you're clearing out space in your storage vaults, uh, you're reducing your overhead for preservation um, and um, maintenance of prints, and uh, you're making a, a small profit in the process. So this is a form of distribution, if you're looking at the Middle East, uh, where the, the profits for main distributors are very small, I mean, fractions of a percent, particularly Iran, right? right. Um, 
And so their interest, um, we're talking all the way up to the, the top of the, the, the sort of hierarchy for like, if you're talking about Hollywood prints, um, their interest in the Middle East was um, how to distribute prints with minimal risk and with maximal um, uh, uh, elimination of junk. You, you uh, this takes us directly into the, the um, heart of the second chapter, circulation worries, and I hope we can talk a little bit more about that. You say there, um, and I'm quoting you now, Kaveh, there occurred at every stage, the relay, a negotiation around risk and an assessment of the film as an object that can generate value, but also generate costs, which is another version of what you, you've just described. I wonder, to get, to get us on the ground in this chapter, if you could explain a little bit about the reputation of Iran as a site for piracy at this historical moment that you're investigating in this chapter. And then that allows, I think, to segue to a discussion of the, the kind of rich culture of, of dubbing that um, develops uh, at this moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, piracy is an interesting, um, it's, it's, it's one of the, the sort of key components of that chapter and kind of thinking about the term and thinking about the, the, the histories that are involved in, in the term and it's, you know, it's relationship to Orientalism and, and sort of other uh, formations of power. Um, you know, Iran was known um, as, a, and this is going into the, into the early 70s or the later, latest part of, of my book, um, but was known as a um, as a hub for producing vinyl. Um, they 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 uh, I mean vinyl records. Uh, mm -hmm. They they recreated audio um, uh, recordings uh, in Iran and distributed them around the Middle East and South Asia. Um, uh, and there was a lot of sort of discussion in international piracy. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of concerns over how to monitor that. Um, Iran was sort of held up in, in its own kind of specific exhibits. Um, there, uh, let's see, what else did I want to say about piracy? Oh, um, I, I just also wanted to say that I think it's important to keep in mind that intellectual property and sort of questions of property and licensing and piracy are, um, as other scholars of, of uh, intellectual property have, have noted, designed to leak. Um, you know, I think we need to be careful not to assume a kind of, um, uh, you know, this 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 piracy-free world um, that is the sort of ideal, or that when the world is functioning properly, and then and then piracy is a sort of uh, corruption, um, uh, you know, unlicensed uh, or informal circulation is a form of corruption of that. Uh, when in fact, um, a lot of what is at some point called piracy. Um, is in fact used by uh, by companies that have um, power and control over intellectual property to basically do R and D for free, right? Because if you can get if you can get a, a million uh, fans all using, let's say, you know, to reference the work of one of our colleagues, if you can get a million fans all using uh, video uh, uh, data cards and looking at uh, songs from films on their phones and establishing this practice on a mass scale. Uh, then um, a company can come in uh, potentially and monetize that. And they're always looking to do those kinds of things. Um, so it's in their best interest, even, even the most sort of profit-driven sort of corporate media interest to allow license and copyright to leak at the sides. It's kind of built into the system. And, and with the idea that they would then recapture it at some point. Right, right. And you do such a great job in the chapter of, of sort of underscoring that point that corporations depend to a certain extent on leakage and then find um, opportunities to um, enclose at a, at a later moment after this sort of free R&D is done. I, I wonder, could, could you talk us, there's some amazing examples in, in this chapter and I'm thinking about specifically this moment where for example, Selznick and his colleagues sort of begin to realize how profitable um, the, the dubbing um, practices have been uh, in Iran. So talk us through that as an example of precisely this dynamic that you're talking about, leakage and then an attempt to enclose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Iran was, uh, had, a, had a really amazing practice of dubbing, um, well, you know, because partly just because of the, the 
sort of contained nature of the language. Uh, you know, Persian um, is, is is spoken uh, is the primary language spoken in Iran, and and so it's disconnected from a different language family from Arabic, and uh, this you know it's not able. The dubbed prints are not dubbed in Arabic, are obviously not able to circulate in Iran. So they kind of had. They were invisible, they were off the radar of the distributors, and they had a strong motivation to figure out how to dub the films on, on their own. Um, so there's all this really interesting work that engineers did with magnetic recording technology, which even in Hollywood at the time was a luxury technology, uh, but Iran was, was um, really uh, a, a kind of um, uh, intense and, and creative adopter of, of that technology. Um, and I've listened to some of those prints at the National Film Archive in Tehran and the, the sound quality is just amazing. Um, you know, obviously it sounds like collage because the voices are patched in and, um, and it, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like a, you know, polished engineered piece the way we would understand it um, in, in a Hollywood studio uh, soundtrack, but just the sort of texture of the sound and the, the presence of the voices. I mean, that, that's something that really comes through with that mag track. And to get back to your question about Selznick, I mean, this this is like, if we're talking about like these really exciting finds in in uh, in film archives, I mean, that was that was really one of them. I was I was surprised to see, you know, I went to the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, uh, and spent a lot of time looking at their foreign distro files and their legal files. Um, these are folders that don't get looked at a lot by by film historians. <laughs> I mean, like the, the archivist at the Warner Archive at USC was like, you really want to look at all this material? Yeah, I don't think I've ever taken this out of the- That's where the exciting the stuff is. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, and it's like, uh, it's exciting stuff for me. Um, and it's just like, you really want to, yeah, legal files? Yeah. Um, and uh, what, you know, what's amazing is that the, the these distribution files, like in the Selznick archive are very conversational. Um, and they're, there's, they're really sort of gossipy and I, you know, I, I, I tried to reproduce some of the fun of the gossipiness of them in the, in the book. You know, I That's clear. A lot of clear. Citations. Um, and uh, Selznick, you know, I was first surprised to realize he did everything he could, well, maybe not everything, but he did a lot to basically conceal unlicensed screenings in Iran um, because he was tired of the, the regional distributors in Cairo complaining uh, about these unlicensed screenings. So he basically... Uh, you know, basically told Iranian distributors, like, look, give me any excuse to say that this isn't happening. And I'll take that back to the regional distributor. And because I want this process to remain invisible right. for right now. You know? I need about it, but apparently then also like asking for discounts on licensing fees precisely because of the market for the, the, the pirated um, material, right? Yeah, yeah. And Selznick didn't want to give discounts uh, no. uh, to <laughs> the regional distributors. Um, and uh, and so he basically said, well, yeah, Iran said that they're actually not showing unlicensed copies of Spellbound. It's this other film with a similar title. You know, the Iranian uh, title for Spellbound is Teles Meshodeh. And the, there was another film around the same time called Teles Meshekaste. They're like, oh, it's, the titles sound very similar. Um, and uh, and uh, so it's just a confusion in title. Uh, and Selznick said, great. Yeah, that's, that's the story I'm telling. Um, but then he started to get wind of these, um, these dubbed friends and his his uh, the person in charge of, of global distribution, one of the people in charge of global distribution went to Iran and said, look, we're not sending them separate soundtracks. We're not sending them, you know, the, the music separate from the dialogue. Um, we're just sending them these, these junk prints, uh, these, these positive uh, prints. We're not even sending them the negatives so they can reproduce them. And they're just recording onto these magnetic stripes, gluing that stripe onto the film and making these really uh, given their technological challenges involved um, and the, their lack of original resources, they're making these really high quality dubbed films. Um, and uh, and it's, it's kind of impressive. Uh, and I don't know how they do it, but I, I, I listened to some of the films of the theater and they, they sound really good. And Selznick's immediate response was, oh great, we're gonna set up an entire regional dubbing center for the for the whole Middle East. Um, he said, you know, this, this will be an opportunity, you know, I've let this be invisible for so long, um, now we finally achieved our moment where we can capture uh, this and 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 profit off of it. Um, and it, I, I imagine if if everything that he thought in his mind at the time were true, um, you know, he would have been able to to go through with it. And he, you know, um, the the only problem is that what he thought in his mind is that Persian was just a dialogue dialect of Arabic, and didn't realize that they were two totally separate languages and different language families. Um, and he was like, well, you know, I'm sure audiences in Egypt would, um, 
would struggle to understand the you know Iranian accent, but they could get a basic idea. And then basically his uh, office had to like contact UCLA's um, uh, languages, like uh, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern languages department. And they talked to a couple of professors there and the professor was like, no, sorry, this isn't gonna work. Um, and then he basically said, oh, well, uh, let's just sell all of our old prints at, at um, bargain uh, sales uh, to Iran one more time. And we'll, 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 we'll kick this can down the road and see if there's an opportunity to capture later on. You know, there's that moment, it's, it's around there in this chapter where you also acknowledge, um, just as you said, you're, you're attempting to capture sort of the gossipy nature of, of some of the correspondence, but there's also this um, attempt to underscore the real sort of invisibility or opacity uh, around Iran for Selznick and, and folks in their ambit. I mean, the way in which they simply were misunderstanding the language, the culture, and, and, the, and that that um, a, a kind of story about that invisibility or that opacity is also part of what you're trying to describe. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a story of this opacity um, and also a story about how this opacity or invisibility is um, necessary for the system to work in the way that it did for, for such a long time. Right, um, that it's not just that the situation worked despite these challenges, but rather these challenges were sort of built in uh, to uh, to the system to make it work in that way, and it worked to most uh, actors' advantage uh, for for a, a long a long time. Yeah, you know, one of the other marvels of of th this particular chapter is the way in which these. Um, underexamined or unknown players, these sort of middlemen, you call them intermediaries, kind of come to the fore in the, na the narrative. And there are a few of them in, in this chapter. Um, Mansour, I may be mispronouncing the names, and Name Azer, am I pronouncing that correctly? Could you say a little bit about these uh, uh, distributors and, and their role in this narrative of circulation? Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, yeah, there's uh, I, George Mansour, who's in, in Cairo, um, and he uh, gets, uh, you know, Selznick company, uh, every 10 years or so, they basically did this push to re-release their back catalog. And they made, they struck new prints, um, or at least amassed um, a collection of decent quality old prints and, and uh, sent them out around the world. Um, and Mansoor was uh, one of the regional distributors in, uh, in Cairo who, who um, got the, the, the licensing rights to, to basically the, the broader region. Um, so he was the one who was complaining to Selznick uh, about um, these unlicensed screenings in Iraq and Iran. Um, Naim, uh, I actually, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I, I, I say it Iser. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I, I believe he's Mizrahi Israqi. Um, uh, and he had some brothers in New York who owned a, basically a hosiery business. Um, and they, they did all the trade. Uh, so, so the the brothers would, uh, you know, uh, Nine would send his brothers Edward and Joseph uh, prints, and they would uh, communicate with um, distributors in in New York and in Los Angeles. Um, or not sorry, Nine would send uh, money to his brothers, and they would they would send the prints to Nine, uh, and the uh, you know the the exchange rate and all that was worked out um, among the brothers rather than having to be worked out uh, with uh, with the distributors. Nine owned the uh, King Ghazi Cinema in Baghdad, uh, which was kind of the only visibility point at, in Iran for a while uh, for, for distributors. Uh, and Naim would take trips to Tehran and uh, after he had shown his films, he would, he would bring them to Tehran and, and, um, and sell them to, to his contacts there. So another, each of those is its own kind of, um, you know, point of obstruction or, or point of, of, of an invisibility. I wonder if we could sort of step back. I mean, sticking with this chapter, but but stepping back um, uh, to the to the project as a whole. I wanted to ask you, Kave, about how you're asking us to sort of rethink notions of of creative production. You use the phrase repeatedly, creative labor, um, and and obviously in the context of um, this chapter, you're you're trying to reframe. I think it's fair to say a, a certain way of thinking about 
dubbing practices and, and the way that they get dismissed or marginalized or the way dubbing is, is sort of um, restores a model where, you know, ho Hollywood is the site of originality and innovation and then there's copying around the world. So um, I know this is a kind of through line throughout the book, this, this way of um, rethinking creative labor and, and also positioning a whole kind of rhetoric of creativity and innovation in a different in a different frame and in a frame that I think is maybe resisting certain let's say neoliberal models of creativity and innovation so it's a, I know it's a really broad question but I'd love to hear you say a little bit about that yeah I mean uh, you know dubbing is something um, you know I would say that uh, it is there's there is a tendency to kind of look down on on the dub on on dubbing uh, broadly speaking. Um, you know, if if we're talking about um, the original creators of the film and how they they feel about uh, dubbed versions of their films, there's a sense in which um, there 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 is a pervading assumption about them as as being sort of vulgarized or 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 um, there there's some kind of violence enacted into the print and in, in that transformation. Um, but I mean, this book is all about the transformations to the print, right? Uh, and so I want to sort of take that um, take that aspect seriously. I mean, I think even within Iran, I mean, there is there's this kind of um, you know, everybody, you, you talk about dubbing prints and there's there's at once a kind of smile of nostalgia and then also like a little bit of a, a blushing of embarrassment over the uh, sort of lo-fi nature of the practice, right? Uh, and those two things kind of uh, go go hand in hand and like uh, in like cinephile culture when you're, you're, you're talking about um, Iranians who, who um, know these dubbed films uh, very well. Um, you know, so I wanted to kind of think about that and 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 center it in a way that that counteracts some of that marginalization or or or, or sort of cuts against it or think about ways to cut against it and um, that are interesting. Um, what I didn't want to do is uh, then sort of recreate a, a notion of creativity um, that seeks to. Uh, reestablish a kind of individual agency of the, the creative artist um, in a kind of remix uh, frame um, and say uh, that these uh, like the, the sound designers for the film or the, you know, the, the, um, the dubbing artists are, are they're just like remix artists and they're artists in their own right and they um, there, there needs to be a, a kind of canon and a history written about their particular artistic achievements. I mean, I think that that argument is definitely important. And I think that there is work that needs to be done, more work that needs to be done on particular dubbing artists. I mean, that's actually not a, like the, the actual dubbing artists themselves and their biographies is not something that I go into in any detail um, in, in this book. Um, you know, you the, acknowledge, I think that that would be an entirely different book, another book. Yeah. Yeah, and there are definitely there are definitely scholars who are writing on this um, uh, in Iran, and 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 some some new uh, dissertations that are that are exploring elements of this, and I'm really excited to see where that work goes in in the next um, several years. Um, the the thing that I wanted to be wary of in my definition of creativity uh, is this idea that we can rescue some kind of affirmative, truly creative remix culture from a culture of informality of, of informal circulation media and that there's some kind of hard line and we need to establish that hard line in order to decide what is bad piracy and what is good creative remix um, because i think that hard line itself is you know as you said a, a kind of neoliberal formation and there, there you know certain groups of scholars that have um that have uh, established that that basic idea that like well, we need to give creative license to remixers, but we also need to protect ourselves against um, this, this kind of um, bad piracy. Uh, and so how do we do that? I mean, for me, um, the, you know, and, and that's not the only, I mean, I'm not the only person who's made that argument. Um, the way that I kind of pursue it in the book and, and explore um, a, an alternative is to think about like engineering as a form of creative labor, uh, to think about uh, these, this this play with this work with magnetic tracks as a, as a form of creative labor, uh, to think about the, the the sound designers, the music editors 
who re-edited uh, soundtracks uh, from borrowed from classical records that were being produced and maybe copied in Iran and movie soundtracks that are being produced and copied in Iran. Um, to think of them, at their creative labor as sure connected to a kind of music remix culture. I mean, I think it's important to think of that, um, it, that, that connection, uh, but also to think of it as an, an expression of other kinds, you know, solving other kinds of, of problems, some of which are engineering problems, some of which are problems of access, some of which are problems of how do you address a particular audience, right? And if you put an unknown soundtrack uh, as a fragment in your Iranian film, uh, if it's borrowed, even if it's borrowed from another movie, that might not be as effective as putting the main theme from the biggest blockbuster Hollywood film that played in Iran that same uh, month or you know that same year, and so you get this sort of uh, you get all of these kind of creative decisions that are being made um, by by these music editors that address a range of problems that aren't necessarily about their own sort of building of an individual oeuvre, but more about sort of interacting with audiences and interacting with the technology and, 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 um, and making it all financially uh, viable. And I know this takes us a little bit to the, to the, I think it's a separate chapter in the book. It's, I think it's the following chapter, memory serves, the, the, the third chapter on, on found film scores and, and collage scoring. And I, I wonder if, if you would be willing briefly to just say a little bit about that practice, because I recall with great fondness, Kaveh, you, you describing with, with glee the, your, your attempt to sort of map this very complicated database of, of found Hollywood scores, which involved actually sort of physically creating the kind of uh, a map in your, in your, in your study. Um, so just if you would say a little bit more about that, that chapter and, and that, uh, that practice. That's right. Yeah, scrolls have been a really large part of my research process. Even going back to undergrad, I think I'm mildly dyslexic, and it helps for me just to organize everything spatially. And I, they, I just add to these scrolls. And um, and uh, and this was this particular scroll was a spreadsheet of basically every um, uh, every soundtrack, every every score, every fragment. Uh, that was borrowed in a film that was made in Iran, uh, but borrowed from a Hollywood film or borrowed from a classical composition. Um, and I, I used uh, Shazam, uh, I, which which is a, a, a kind of, I mean, it's interesting because it's it's software that, I mean, sure, there's like a consumer um, uh, use for it and, 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 you know, people use it to recognize their, their favorite songs. Um, you just hold, you basically hold your phone up for those of anybody listening who hasn't used this, right? You hold your phone up to a speaker uh, and uh, play some of the music into your phone and, it, and it, if it can find the source, um, it will tell you uh, the, the, the source of the music. Um, and you can leave it on for an entire feature film and just have it running. And that's what I did for, you know, thousands of hours of, uh, of these films, just had it running in the background, recognizing as many uh, found uh, fragments of, of, of music that, that I could find. Um, and I think it goes back to this very early part in our, our uh, discussion, what we were talking about at the very beginning of, you know, how do you construct, if it, so this is a, a, a history that is really interested in the materiality of the medium. It's really interesting, it's very object focused. Um, how do you construct a history of that when a lot of the objects no longer exist or they're dispersed in a way that they're completely inaccessible? Um, and one of the um, archives that I wanted to reconstruct was the archive of these um, sound editors, these music editors, because they were famous for this. They would go on shopping trips uh, around the world. They would collect records. They would bring them back to Iran. They had these elaborate, um, you know, uh, shelves uh, and, and archives that they would take with them. If they took a job at a different studio, they would bring their collection to the new studio. And um, as far as I mean, I've still, I would love to be able to find um, a collection uh, that, that still exists in some kind of, um, with some kind of integrity, but I haven't heard of one existing yet. If anyone who's listening to this has heard of it, please contact me. Um, but I, for this chapter, the challenge, as it is for every chapter, to reconstruct some, the, the material history of something that's invisible or that has, that has, um, uh, is no longer available uh, and reconstruct a network that was by design invisible at its various junctures, right? Um, uh, or obstructed uh, from, from full view at its various junctures. Um, the, the thing that I wanted to reconstruct was were these sound archives. And the way that I decided to do it was to use this audio recognition software, which honestly is pioneered or developed in order to catch piracy. 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, these, these, are, these are programs that run in the background on YouTube all the time and flag content for piracy. So I'm kind of using, you know, using this, this uh, software that was designed for exactly the opposite purpose. Uh, to uncover this this archive of these these sound engineers and and uh, yeah um, did it for about 200, uh, 270 films or something like that amazing amazing I, I thought maybe as a way of of bringing our conversation to a close uh, we would end with where the book begins because I think you begin with such a, a kind of fascinating example and since I haven't had a chance to talk with you about it I have to ask because it, it you're, here you're bearing down specifically on. Um, on, on modern design, but you, you start with uh, the title sequence of a Samuel Kajikian film called The Strike, a, a crime th thriller. And, and you read this as a kind of, if I understand it, a, a kind of parallel, a, a parable of how um, style travels globally and specifically a, a certain kind of, of a modern design that may be influenced by someone like Sal Bass, Sal Bass in, this, um, in this instance. Uh, could you just, say a little bit about that opening example as a way of thinking about style and circulation? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is um, uh, something that I'm really uh, excited to talk more about with you specifically uh, because of your work. Uh, you know, this this was a huge premiere. And I, I start with the like the image uh, of, of the premiere um, and the, the title sequence of the film is designed by the same person who did the marquee for uh, for the the premiere and was actually hired by the director, and this was kind of um, his first uh, his first big gig. Uh, is working working for this this director, and he he designed these placards, these um, the, these marquees uh, throughout his career, and, and did some more title work uh, throughout um, throughout his career. Um, it's I mean it's interesting to me in a, in a number of ways, right? Uh, first, this this sort of tie-in element of the design of all these different levels of publicity, right? Um, you know, and, and even that those sort of dotted lines that you that you see at the the beginning of Sarabat, the strike, uh, are um, I had I actually asked the designers of my book to recreate those dotted lines on the these diagonal dotted lines because I I wanted that to be kind of foregrounded um, on the cover. So there's a there's an element of that worked into the cover of the book. Um, but for me, it is, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's important to kind of think about this, uh, you know, as you said, this kind of global itinerary of, of modern design and the way that it allows um, a kind of imagining of an elsewhere, right? Um, and, and this even kind of gets into the, the film noir chapter, which I, I know you've, you've read as well. Um, there's, especially in Kachikian's work, there is an interest. I mean, he he has maybe not received as much attention as he might have given uh, the, the the sort of fascinating body of work that he's produced. Um, partly because he, for scholars writing kind of national histories of Iranian cinema, um, they're not going to focus on a director whose style is so you know wildly um, uh, integrated with uh, with these design trends that are going on uh, around the world you know he, he's he's seen as a filmmaker that you know it's just it's just the frame of research it's hard to position him it's hard to position him within a national history of of uh, cinema in iran um, and my book is precisely not a national history of, of cinema in iran so i thought well if i'm going to have a chapter that tends to focus on one particular director um, I'll I'll look at at this at this director um, and think about this kind of period of growth of, of economic growth this rise of a kind of um, you know kind of nouveau riche uh, you know phenomenon uh, in Iran um, and uh, the the intense um, you know his decor is just saturated uh, with objects of luxury, objects of, of modern design, objects of visual curiosity in themselves. Um, and I think, you know, his films, you know, they're, they're, he wants to, to cram as much of this, um, these kind of interesting references into his films as possible. And he, they, they, they work in these like little modules that, um, that he sort of adds. Uh, and the title sequence is one, you know, he's very interested in title sequences. He's very interested in the, the graphics of the, of the title, but also the, opening sequences of his films as, as keying into all of the uh, uh, markers of film noir, of the crime thriller, um, 
you know, in the first five minutes. And then there are periods in the film where they veer off into other forms of comedy or, or, uh, or family melodrama or other things. Um, but they start with this sort of clear generic marker um, and clear sort of design scheme. Uh, and they, they often end with, with something like that as well as a kind of, uh, as a way of sort of signaling these films connectedness to um, style that is sort of circulating in the, in the larger film community. And I mean, I will say we, we haven't had a chance to talk about it in much detail, but the, ch the chapter on noir is spectacular. And congratulations on just this truly groundbreaking contribution to a sort of global understanding of that genre or style or mood or whatever we want to call it. Um, Kaveh, I, I, I want to thank you so much for, for the conversation. I know that I, as a way of ending, I will ask, I know you're about to give a, a, a version of a, of a book talk at another context. Can you just say a little bit about uh, where you'll be describing this book and for whom? Uh, yeah, it's actually, we're um, recording it tomorrow uh, afternoon at, at Princeton. Um, it is um, a, a center for Iranian and, um, and Persian Gulf studies. Um, and some, some uh, lovely, generous colleagues there have, have agreed to um, uh, give some of their time over to talking about this particular book. Uh, and I, I think that I'm, you know, the, the plan is to frame the presentation in five objects. That's because, you know, the book is very object focused. And I, I, um, I think that I'll do, I'll, I'll focus on a, a single object uh, for each chapter. Uh, and, um, and yeah, we'll see where the conversation goes from there. I mean, it's, it's interesting to present in front of a, a, like a media studies or film studies audience versus an Iranian studies audience. I mean, this book is, you know, it, not all parts of the book are gonna speak to any one field. I mean, it has to kind of switch, do a lot of switching back and forth. And um, my hope is that I've just provided enough material for, um, for someone in, in any of these connected fields to, to find something of value in it. Well, Kaveh, the book, one of its many marvels is that it uh, addresses so many fields and so many audiences with such uh, analytical power and, and precision. So again, congratulations on the achievement of the book. And it was a real treat to have a chance to talk with you about it. Thanks so much. And it's, uh, yeah, a real, a real pleasure to talk to you about it specifically. Thanks, Kaveh. Thanks again all for your tuning into another episode of Prerequisites, your guide to the thriving research culture of the Department of English at MSU. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. A special note of thanks to Zach Cruzy and Daniel Trego for their work in the production of the Prerequisites podcast. Be well.